0: The Brits and Irishmen at the Centre of Asia's Footballing Revolution. Uh, and the author is Chris Foley. Why did you write it in secret?
1: Uh, yeah, it's a good question, Johnny. I suppose it's because I, I didn't really back myself to actually get it done, uh, to be honest with you. I thought if I told too many people, um, I'd only be setting myself up for a fall. But I got there in the end, thank God.
0: It was, logistically, it must have been humongous fun, because the book is a, takes the form of ten little pen picks... Uh, some as short of, I don't know, 2,000 words. The book can't be longer than 30,000 words.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, it's, it's about that. Yeah, we're oh. at 200 pages, so yeah. Yeah, more or less 30,000, I'd say.
0: And it is, I should say, the first book on The Stand, which is nothing to do with Eamon Dunphy, is it?
1: <laughs> I, I wish it was, to be honest. If I could get um, Eamon Dunphy, you know, shout in my corner, Johnny, that'd be brilliant.
0: <laughs> yeah, but he doesn't do much else but shout in someone's corner. But it's uh, James Endicott, the great James Endicott, who was... Um, in the football library talking about his book on Kenifa, uh, has set up a kind of collective. It seems like what, you know, the musical, I don't know why well, you would know SALT, S-A-U-L-T, but they're a musical collective of loads of different musicians. And it seems that, much like various art collectives, this exists, or as I said to James, it's like an independent label. This is like an indie book label, and you are its first signing. You're its Depeche Mode, or The Claxons.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I'm glad you brought up James because I really, am um, I owe a lot to him in terms of getting this over the line. Funnily enough, I I read the Kenifa book as well. I just heard about it on a podcast, and when I was thinking about writing my own, I just got in touch with James out of the blue, looking for a bit of advice. And as luck would have it, he was looking for, um, you know, contributors to the co-op that you're kind of referring to there. So. Um, yeah, very lucky to be the stand's first um, first published book.
0: Yeah, he is looking for other authors, so can you make the pitch now for why you should join the stand and be a stablemate with Chris Foley, whose book Missionaries is out now?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, I I mean, I think really working with someone like James is an endorsement enough in itself. But also, I think the mission behind the stand really is to try and give the authors their fair share. Um, of the books that they're writing, so obviously with traditional publishers, um, you know, it's um, a lot of the work has been put in by the authors, and maybe not all of the profits are going to them accordingly. So I think that's what James is trying to address. So couldn't couldn't recommend it enough, and I'd recommend also just checking out their website and seeing what it's all about. thestanpublishing.com I, I think it is. That, yeah. uh, apologies, James, but butchered that.
0: James is looking for authors. I'm converted as well. I've got a football novel that I want to bring out at the end of the year. That's my summer project. It is my, to quote Chris Foley, personal pet project, uh, which you say <laughs> near the end of the book. Your girlfriend, uh, I'll go for GIE, but I don't know what the pinyin tonal is on her name. <laughs> I,
1: I've definitely heard worse pronunciations, Johnny. Like, anytime there's there's, like, a delivery coming to the house, I get, <laughs> I get an interesting range from a uh, Dublin delivery man. Um, GIE is, is my girlfriend's name. GIE. And, yeah confided in her throughout, and I suppose she is uh, from China herself, so um, it was good having um, an Asian person to consult, let's say, throughout the project.
0: Does that mean that you'll be taking her on a lovely holiday to the Asian Cup next year?
1: I wish that were the case, Johnny, but actually, I don't know if you heard, um, just last week, China pulled out of hosting no, the I
0: Games. No, I didn't. No, I didn't.
1: I think, presumably, because of the COVID situation there, so they, they've pulled no. out, unfortunately.
0: God, so can it go on at all?
1: Yeah, I... People are speculating it might, it might just go to Qatar. That probably would make mm, the most yeah, sense because they're, they're probably ready sense. to go. Yeah. Yeah, so um, we shall see how that plays out, I guess.
0: Yeah, well, one team definitely not in Qatar uh, is the Republic of Ireland.
1: Yeah, well, we're actually boycotting the tournament, Johnny. Um, Same man, as Norway.
0: We'll I think it with. was a really smart thing for <laughs> you and Norway to do. I think you should have a kind of friendly game in December where Erling Haaland can come to Dublin in a kind of, you know, Garth Brooks is coming to Croke Park for five days in September. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. Are you going?
1: I'm not, no. But he told me to get ticket sizes.
0: eh? I can bet. 400,000 people he's playing to over the five days. It could just be the same 80,000 five times. But...
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Could well be. No, I mean, we'll, we'll touch on Ireland while, you, while we're here, uh, because you call John Delaney in the book much maligned. Is that the best you could legally get away with here?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's probably the understatement of the year right there. Um, yeah, I mean, he's a character. There's a brilliant book that just came out last year, Champagne Football. I don't know if you've read it, but um, they really do a lot more justice on it. I know that it's,
0: it's the best-selling book in Ireland this decade, I think, so far. It's the Bible and uh, Champagne Football, uh, which is based off various <laughs> um, investigations. But what a calamity. What a calamity. It's worse than Manchester United, almost.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's incredible what he got away with for so long. I think after people have bought my book, obviously, um, Champagne Football, I can't recommend it enough. Like, it's, it's an unbelievable story, really. Uh, you couldn't write it.
0: No, and it went on and on and on and on. You were inspired just to be a fan of football by the 2002 World Cup, which coincidentally was South Korea and Japan. Uh, and Ireland competed famously in it we actually I asked a question in my football quiz that I do what was the island that Roy Keane stormed out of because he was unhappy the island were based there
1: yeah it's funny like every Irish person would would have Saipan in their, in their vocabulary but I can't imagine a lot of other people would um, outside but yeah 2002 World Cup as you say that really is where it all began for me and I think you know, pure coincidence that Ireland were in it because they haven't qualified since. But mm. I never looked back from there, Johnny, to be honest with you.
0: The fanfare, the noise, the colours, a festival of globalisation uh, or globalism. I think you said globalism, which is true. And do you re- retain fond memories of that tournament? Because I think today is the anniversary of the opening game.
1: Yeah, I mean it's funny, I've heard like I've heard people like Tim Tim Vickery, for example, you know, reflecting on his childhood memories of World Cups, like the nineteen seventy I mean. World Cup, yeah, eighty six in me- Mexico and saying how it's never been the same since then. So maybe it's just that innocence of being a kid and seeing all these, you know, I guess fresh faces on the television for the first time. But uh yeah, for me that was as good as it got. But who knows, maybe Ireland may um, may stop boycotting international tournaments from the
0: next one. Well, when there's 96 teams taking part in one and only kind of Brunei don't play, it's just getting ridiculous. I'm actually taking a sabbatical. I'm not going to follow the World Cup because I too, like ERA and like Norway, I don't care. We we know why Qatar have got the World (laughs) Cup. It would be lovely if England could do well, but it's hot and sticky and we're not built for that. Jordan Henderson is from Sunderland. So... We're not going to do well. It's going to be Brazil or Argentina and everyone. and the World Cup final organisation will hopefully be better than the Champions League final. What was the reportage like in Ireland for the Champions League final? Because obviously there's a lot of Liverpool fans in Dublin and Cork. Yeah,
1: there really are a lot of Liverpool fans, but there are also a lot of them, um, you know, Liverpool haters, I guess you could say. Or Man United um,
0: fans, as they're otherwise known, yes.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly, Johnny. So I think uh, yeah, I mean I was delighted with how it went myself. Not a great game of football, but I suppose two weeks before that it was looking like the quadruple was on, so I think we came out um, you know, relatively unscathed from the season.
0: It's good to see well, the worst two teams possible that could be doing brilliantly, and I should say you're the grandson of Grandpa Paddy, who is a or was a United fan. And I grew up as you did in the Ferguson era, and about two years after Ferguson left United, moved upstairs I realised I actually supported Ferguson, not United.
1: (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned Paddy. He'd be delighted for the shout-out himself, but uh, I'm sceptical as to how big of a United fan he was pre-Ferguson as well, to be honest with you, Johnny.
0: Well, I know Northern Ireland and uh, their fans just love Georgie Best and the fact that he was at United when they won the European Cup meant that then Sammy McElroy went over and became the last Busby Babe I would recommend. A, listening to Sammy McElroy's turn in the football library. Uh, and you do get, Chris Foley, by the way, your football library card. You're about the 230th person. Uh, not the first Irishman. Uh, I spoke to an Irishman, I think, second of all. Uh, Brendan, of Sports Book Reviews.
1: Your- right, well, I saw, I saw that you were speaking to Nade Manua there a couple of weeks ago, so I was pretty flattered to be in the company of, a, of an ex-Premier League footballer, for sure.
0: Yeah, and one who uh, went west... Uh, we're talking about footballers who went east young man but uh Nadem lived yeah. in Utah of all the places to fall in a guy from Manchester via Nigeria or the other way around in so his book kicking back is getting good write-ups and obviously he played for the side uh who he played for the team who have now just won one English football i mean there's there's no doubt and everyone forgets by the way did you see on the last game, they panned to Guardiola and he was standing with a man called Khaldun al-Mubarak. Right. No one talks about him, but he is kind of the Sheikh's representative in Manchester. And it just goes to show how crucial football has become. I saw a chart in the Times today that said that the top business commercial turnover in 2005 when the Glazers took over Man United was about 50 million now it's 350 million or something so it's a different game it's fought in the boardrooms and in the commercial aspect which is why it's so interesting segue for you to talk about Patrick Murphy um, in about two minutes can you distill the 10th and most important chapter of your book missionaries yeah
1: that, that is a brilliant segue Johnny I mean I was in two minds about including Patrick. But when I heard his story, I just thought it was so fascinating. I wasn't sure if readers would even be interested in hearing about somebody who works kind of behind the scenes in Asian football. Um, but he surely must be the only Irishman that's, um, I suppose, got a position of that, that stature um, in the game. But yeah, just to distill his story. So Patrick Murphy is kind of responsible for the promotion of Asian football on behalf of the AFC. Um, so that's media broadcasting, sponsorship, everything of that sort. Um, he rose up to the ranks in European football. He's worked with UEFA. He's worked with CONMEBOL. Um, he's worked on bringing Premier League sides over to Asia for preseason tournaments, for example. Um, yeah, so anything commercial football related, um, he's been at the centre of it really for the last 20 years. And yeah, he's now trying to get uh, essentially get Asian people to start watching Asian football instead of the Premier League product. So that's his mission. And I would say he probably is the most important person in the book, um, taking that into account.
0: Mm. I must have mentioned 10 times David Goldblatt's discovery that if you are in Lagos or Accra, you're not going to follow Lagos United or Accra Rovers. And that's <laughs> paraphrasing. You're going to follow Arsenal, <laughs> Liverpool, Man United. So I'm sure Patrick Murphy will be asked every day of his life, what is the unique selling point of football in the Far East?
1: Yeah, it's a tough one. Like, I mean, it's it's definitely a hard sell. And as I say... He's a man who would have spent a lot of his career trying to promote, you know, English football in the Far East. So it's definitely a, you know, a, a big U-turn there. But I'm still trying to figure out the selling point myself, Johnny. I guess I think for someone like me who just really likes football off the beaten track, things a bit different. You can't beat Asian football, from my opinion. But uh, I suppose someone who just wants an easy watch and is most interested in the quality, for now at least, it's quite a hard sell. And I think that's why the people in this book, you know, are so important because at the end of the day, it is their job to to. Raise standards in Asian football.
0: I mean, there are two precedents here in England um, and probably Ireland as well. Because when Dundalk played Arsenal, was it last year twice? That reminded yeah, yeah, people that yeah. there is top level football in Ireland, albeit soccer is probably even behind GAA, hurling. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I learned a word the other week because I read Claire Shine's book. Camogie? K- Camogie. Camogie,
1: yeah, yeah, that's right. Which is like shinty,
0: yeah. I think.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, f- I mean, football, soccer, <laughs> whatever you like to call it, is is definitely, um, behind the pagan order, you know, behind Gaelic games, um, hurling, camogie, and, and Gaelic football, as you say. So there's definitely parallels that can be drawn between football in Ireland and football in Asia, 100. Yeah. And maybe that's why I kind of have something of an affinity, um, with the game in Asia.
0: Possibly, and well, the two precedents I was thinking of was the women's game in Britain, which is finally getting big sponsorship. And you do touch on how the women's game was banned for 50 years. Never forget the FA blundered there enormously, but it was a different time. It's different now. There's money involved uh, and there's an Equality Act. Um, America has just got equal pay for the women's athletes, which took far too long uh, to get involved. Ada Hagerberg sat out a World Cup, which I found astonishing. The best player in the world said, I'm not playing. I wonder, and she is back for uh, next year's World Cup. Uh, for which South Korea have qualified more shortly. But the other precedent is non-league football. How do you attract people to St. Albans City and Borehamwood and Wealdstone when they could go to Watford Arsenal Tottenham? How do you attract people... How do you keep Irish people in Ireland watching Bohemians and Dundalk rather than hop on a ferry and go to Goodison Park or Anfield or Old Trafford? Yeah,
1: it's a great question. And, like, I suppose... If you compare football with rugby, let's say where rugby we've basically gone with the model of not trying to have a domestic professional league and instead just having four teams that compete, you know, abroad essentially. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. Like I think League of Ireland football has come on greatly in the last few years. I'm a season ticket holder, at Bohemians myself, so I'm doing my bit there. But it's yeah, it's it's very hard to sell to the masses. I would say Premier League, if anything, is just getting more and more popular every year.
0: Well, that's good. So I'm trying to read the 92. So all the professional teams in the top four leagues of England. But I've also chatted to some Scottish football fans. And I don't think Brendan was a Bohemians fan. I think he was a fan of one of the other clubs in Ireland. Um, Limerick, possibly, although don't quote me on that, please. But I don't think I've spoken to a Bohemians fan. Have you had an all right season?
1: Uh, We're mid-table. We're not going anywhere fast I suppose the thing Johnny is like League of Ireland fans I would say are after something different like a lot of them you'll meet are I guess a little bit disillusioned with the Premier League um, I would have grown up watching Premier League and still do you know to, to a certain extent um, but I think just the predictability I suppose what you referred to earlier like in terms of sports watching and stuff like that um, a lot of people have started to turn their back on it and just start watching local football and seeing what is probably a bit, bit more of a purer um, competition, but to be the devil's advocate there, the richest team in the league, Shamrock Rovers, still is winning the league, you know um, some money is still, you know, a massive part of the game. Yeah.
0: Look, I know what the story is going to be in Premier League football it's going to be, Alan Shearer why don't you condemn Saudi human rights, and it's because Newcastle will be probably third in the table, we know, we know <laughs> what's going to happen next year, and the story isn't going to be the fans, it's not going to be MBS it's not going to be the Staveley, who is a, like a, a definite plant there. It's not even going to be Jamie Rubin, the third richest man in Britain. It's going to be Alan Shearer and the Newcastle former players like Warren Barton, who are at the club, and, and it's just nonsense. So let us turn to, well, where do we go? Because we can go many places. Um, the, the nations that you mention in this book, you probably mentioned them all, actually. Did you do that on purpose? You seem to have mentioned, apart from maybe lao I think you've ticked off the move.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I really did try my best not to leave any out. Like, but then it's so it's such a hard region to cover because it's so diverse. I mean, there is no designated India chapter, for example, and like there, you could definitely do a whole book on football in India. Um, I've neglected most of the Middle East as well because, um, you know, although they're all within the one confederation, I suppose culturally, linguistically, and otherwise, you know, the Middle East is quite different to East Asia, and it's um, yeah, you could have a whole different book on that as well. Um, but yeah, I've tried my best to cover everywhere, Johnny. Well, sure. let's
0: let's go in reverse. So um, you start one chapter describing the butterfly effect, one of my favourite phenomena, uh, and it's Adrian Pennock uh, who goes to Brunei uh, along with Charlie Clough, who was interviewed by His Royal Highness the Grand Sultan. They are missionaries in its truest sense, because Brunei really doesn't have any football. Infrastructure and to tie that in with what Paul Watson did in Pompeii and I've had him in the library. We know of what he did. The the aspect of footballing missionaries is something that stretches back 150 years. They're just there. Are, there are still untapped areas of the world.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, yeah, as you say, it really is missionaries in its truest sense. Like if you look back, I kind of touch on in the, in the introduction. But if you look back to the you know 20th century early 20th century ac milan real madrid clubs like that were really relying on british and irish expatriates really um, to bring their standards up um, and that's kind of the premise of the book really that these these kind of minnows of world football at the moment whether it's brunei whether it's cambodia that have these british and irish men that are over there um, you know 50 years from now these could be massive clubs and massive nations and in, in world football look at these iceland men, remembered. yeah iceland case in point the I story, I think, really is a, is a fascinating one, for sure.
0: It could belong in world soccer, and it is, to use my favourite phrase, anthology-worthy, because I always look for essays or chapters that you can stick uh, in a football anthology, which is probably what I'm going to love to do in the next few years with the Football Library, because I've spoken to virtually everyone. And so it's lovely to see a completely new author with his little secret project, like David Bowie's album, The Next Day. No one knew about it, (laughs) um, but uh, one person who did was uh, Des McAleenan.
1: Yeah, that's right, yeah. It it would have felt wrong not to mention Des in the acknowledgments of the book, because, you know, when I was first coming up with this project, I wasn't sure which direction I was going to go in Um, But my general idea was covering, you know, stories of these fascinating characters that have gone abroad from the UK and from Ireland and have promoted the game. And Des was one of the first people I reached out to, actually. Um, So I messaged Des on Facebook. We went back and forth. And he basically told me that he wasn't well enough to speak at the time. And unfortunately, I think, you know, that battle that he had with his mental health, I think he ultimately lost, you know, um, and he passed away while the book was being written. So very tragic story. Um, and Des, you know, had a fascinating life. He coached in New York. He coached in Saudi Arabia. And at the time of his passing, he was working in Carlos Queiroz's backroom team um, with the Colombian national team. So, you know, a really fascinating guy, and it really is a great regret that I never met him.
0: Yeah, Missionaries is the book: the Brits and Irishmen at the centre of Asia's footballing revolution, uh, and some of the Asian countries that are mentioned: Cambodia, Thailand, Hong Kong. Malaysia, lovely to see the Ascals there as well. But let's go to South Korea, because I mentioned women's football. Um, it's a fascinating chapter. Uh, Colin Bell, who is now going to be an Irish manager at a World Cup. So should South Korea be everyone's second team at the World Cup next year?
1: You know, it, it touches what well, well, you said earlier about English women's football, like the game um, in South Korea, is actually, they're actually doing more successful than the men's team now Eric, at the moment. Um, they got to the Asian Cup final. Colin Bell, as you say from Leicester, he's the manager and the former Irish national team coach as well. Um, yeah, fascinating guy again. Speaks decent Korean after only being there for a few years. Has really thrown himself in. And uh, I guess he would be a pub quiz answer because he's the only Englishman to have won the Champions League. Um, there's been a few that have won the European Cup for sure, but the Champions League in its current format, um, he was the first one to.
0: I didn't even think of that, but yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, And this show will go out on the 10th of June. Do you know what else happens on the 10th of June that is big for South Korea?
1: No, you got me there.
0: A BTS album. Yes, BTS return. Um, I don't know if if, if you or uh, Jay Yee are fans of BTS, but I'm enormous. Only because of their English language stuff. I think they really are ambassadors for Haoyu which is South expat South Korea and South Korean culture. Um, certainly better than Psy. Remember Gangnam Style 10 years ago?
1: Yeah, he was a bit of a one-hit wonder, wasn't he? Um, I'm actually kicking myself now. I didn't ask Colin Bell if he's if he's become a fan. Surely when he was trying to learn Korean, they would have, uh, would have been on his list.
0: They're an amazing group because it's rap and dance and melody and also looking very attractive. But this is not a BTS fan podcast. This is the football library and... Chris Foley, you are someone who um, was given lots of football books by your godfather McKeel. Do you still have them? Do you ha- do you still have your own football library?
1: Uh, yeah, no, for sure. And I think um, yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll correct you on the pronunciation. Although it's not an easy one. Uh, Michal, oh, Michal. Is, uh, is my godfather. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that's not an easy one. There. You, you nailed Roisin earlier, but uh, that was a tough one for you.
0: I know Ashling, <laughs> Cloda, um, Siobhan. I know all the, all the good ones, but yes. So, now yeah. we know.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, is, uh, but yeah, Michal, um, Michal, huge inspiration for me, really. I think, uh, you know, since I was young, every time he'd call to the house, he'd have a new book for me. Um, and that's where where it started from, really. I'm a massive reader, but I would say 95% of the books I read are football books, Perfect. really. So,
0: well, apart from uh, champagne football, which ones did you most enjoy?
1: Oh, if I was to pick my favourite, to be honest, I'd say the one you mentioned earlier, um, Paul Watson's book about his time in Pompeii, up Pompeii. Brilliant one. And yeah, I'm biased here, of course, but um, James Hendicott's book on Kanifa was an absolutely fantastic read as well. So couldn't recommend that highly enough.
0: I was lucky, and I think I got a job with a big European football organisation. You can probably guess who they are. But I went to the Kanifa World Cup and covered it for me, uh, but also just imbibing what it was. And it- it really, the final was a washout, literally. It wasn't a great final. I would have gone, but it was pissing down with rain. I went to see Mata bailey Baileyland. I was inches from Bruce Grobelaar. Uh, Justin Wally has also been in the football library, the, one of the most mercurial figures in world football. He's more... I don't know why he hasn't. Um, maybe if Justin reads this, he'll go to Asia. He's more into Latvia and Central Europe.
1: Yeah, like some of the characters in the book are, are fascinating, like um, in the Kanifa book. Like Paul Watson, He, as you say, he's been on the football library before, so I won't go too much into his story. But like you're talking about a man that essentially, you know, was having a chat with his mate, talk, really like of becoming an international footballer and ends up traveling across the world and starting his own national team. It's just, it's just crazy. Like if it was a fictional story, um, you'd think it was far-fetched.
0: But some of the characters here in this book, the great Simon McMenemy, who is probably an honorary Pinoy now, an Abaddonian. God, that would be great. An Abedonian talking to someone from the Phils. Those accents are a meeting of minds. Um, I love the fact that he stood up and told his boss that he'd got another job when he was offered it out there. Um, have you watched the Philippines play? Have you, have you watched any clips?
1: I'd say I've watched him, um, certainly watched more Philippines national team football than anyone else in Ireland, I would say. But yeah, Simon's story is incredible. Like, as you say, he was working for an insurance company in England. Dreams of professional football, I'd say, were, you know, starting to fade away. And then he gets a, a Facebook message out of the blue about a national team job in the Philippines. One thing leads to another. He's in Manila the next week. Um, his wife is in tears, obviously, um, at the career move. And he leads them to their greatest ever results you know, um, in front of a packed stadium. It's, yeah, I mean, it's brilliant. And a lot of, I would say, naturalised Brits that were in the team as well. The Young Husband Brothers, for example, Chris Greenwich. Yeah, it was just just an incredible story, really.
0: And Neil Etheridge, the goalkeeper. It is currently, because my partner's out there celebrating her birthday, because she's from Manila. It is 32 degrees, and if it isn't stormy, it's sticky. And if it isn't sticky, it's sunny. And I can't deal with that, because my family are from... Central and Eastern Europe. So I'm not built for that. I don't know how anyone can survive in that weather, where it's either very wet or very hot. But it.
1: Yeah. And I suppose that the Philippines have an extra challenge in terms of promoting football because aside from the Premier League and all the rest of it, they also generally prefer basketball. Yeah, they have NBA I mean, stars. Kind of yeah. I think the, you know, American influence in the country for 50 years or so. Did the trick there, and you know basketball really reigned supreme in the Philippines. So um, yeah, the, what the Alskals have managed, um, certainly with the help of a lot of Brits, has has made has been huge. Really,
0: you make the really good point that I will keep quoting to people. I already have done, by the way, that rugby and cricket. You could probably name only uh, like two dozen nations each that play it in any capacity where it isn't expats just kicking a ball about or or hitting a ball. Football is the most popular ball game on earth, and no wonder kind of mafioso money is coming into it. But it stretches as far as Cambodia, and you start with Mr. Angry Nestor, Connor Nestor, who, whom you start with. I don't know if you did it deliberately for the order of things, um, but you started with this guy who was, well, you tell the story, Connor Nestor, the, um, the guy who quit a comfy job in Ireland, to go over to Phnom Penh?
1: Yeah, I think Connors was probably the most enjoyable one for me to write. First of all, he's just such a character if you look up any interviews with him. But uh, yeah, Limerick Mann was coaching for the FAI, the dream job really, working for the National Association. And you know, one day just decides he wants to manage full-time, he wants to be with players every day. Up sticks, heads east, first to Australia, and by a twist of fate ends up in, in Cambodia, um, just coaching in an international school really coaching kindergartners, the basics um, eventually gets a bit of work with a semi-pro team and they realise they have a serious coach in their hands fast forward a few weeks and he's managing you know in the top tier of the country leads them to their first ever league title yeah just just a brilliant transformation um, you know in the space of a couple of months he's on national TV in Cambodia brings in a guy from Cork as his right hand man who happens to speak the local language um, yeah assembles a you know a real eclectic group of players from all around the world Um, and he's still over there like he's been there for four or five years this wasn't um you know flash in the pan and he's I don't know what his long-term plans are but he's certainly a fixture of Cambodian football that's for sure
0: I'm going to try and pronounce the full name of the football team which I think I can pull up here it's uh Sve Rieng the the pride of Sve Rieng but they have a full name
1: yeah, I'm definitely not the authority on this one, Johnny, but I think it's Swireen, but I'm, I'm quoting Conor Nestor on that. Um, I suppose he's probably been there long enough now, I should take his word for it. But yeah, no, it's 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 brilliant. And like, you know, when you talk about minnows of football, Cambodia really, like the national team, struggled. Like they lost 14-0 to Iran recently. Even within Asia, they're, they're a very lowly ranked side. The infrastructure obviously has a lot of catching up to do. On other areas, you know, they've been through a lot as a nation. So there's a whole unique set of challenges there. And I, I try and go into it in the book as best as possible. Um, the kind of humble uh, challenges that, that Conor Nestor faced is really coaching in, in a developing country. But yeah, it's, it's admirable. It's brilliant what he's doing over there. And the fact he's stuck at it so long as well, he obviously, um, you know, genuinely loves it over there.
0: Only football can have a man called Conor from Limerick coaching Prayer Con Reach Sfireen Football Club.
1: Yeah, exactly, with a, a man from Blarney as his assistant. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's <laughs> you, you couldn't write it.
0: <laughs> and, and that's what makes this such a fascinating, if frustratingly small book, uh, Missionaries, the Brits and Irishmen at the centre of Asia's footballing revolution. Uh, we'll finish um, very soon. Zesh Rahman, his career is also chronicled. Um, I didn't know where it was going, but... You took us on a tour of Thailand, Hong Kong and Malaysia. But the the biggest fact is that his brother works for the PFA over here. I can just imagine uh, his brother calling Zesh and Zesh saying, mate, I'm in Malaysia. I'm going to Hong Kong tomorrow. That's a completely different footballing world from the one he grew up with at Fulham in Mohammed Al-Fayed's era.
1: Yeah, he, I mean, he's probably the most famous person I've covered in the book, potentially, you know, Premier League footballer, as you say, played in all four divisions of English football. His story, I guess, is more about the effect he's having on participation of British Asians, let's say, you know, those of South Asian descent. The participation is so much lower than, you know, their overall representation in the population. So um, he's kind of been a trailblazer in that regard. And yeah, his career is fascinating, as you say. It really is a a whistle-stop tour of, of, you know, most of the regions of Asia.
0: It's an amazing CV, and again... Football can do that. It was amazing to learn that Robbie Fowler was... Was it playing in Australia and managing in India or the other way around? So you get players who grow up being God in Liverpool and Robbie Fowler will never buy a drink in a Liverpool postcode. Many can... He owns every pub in Liverpool, famously, I think. (laughs) I checked that. Um, But the the chapter I really liked, and um, it's another player who came through at English Football... Uh, is Jamie Day, who um, went from Barrow to Bangladesh. And his life seems to be a kind of peripatetic contractor, really, because he still lives here and he flies into Bangladesh. That's a very interesting read.
1: Yeah, like, I suppose Jamie started his career at Arsenal, so he would have been had a huge kind of... Potential growing up, he represented England schoolboys, and you know slowly dropped down the English football pyramid. But has still managed to carve out this absolutely incredible career. You know, managing uh, such a massive country, really, and a, a potential giant of football. I would say football is still very popular there, even if it's you know quite a bit behind cricket. That's kind of what I'm trying to do with this book, really, Johnny, is to to highlight the the spectrum that we have here. You've got guys professional footballers like uh, Zesh Rahman Yonaris, who are on you know probably good money on that side of the world and and flying the flag all the way to like people that are managing you know national teams that are let's say struggling on the world stage people working in grassroots football and then like you said um, earlier on you know Patrick Murphy who's behind the scenes on the corporate end of things so um, the impact that British and Irish people are having on football in that part of the world really is, is huge and I don't think gets enough coverage over here. So, um, yeah, who knows, maybe in decades to come when, um, you know, if, if the first Asian World Cup winner comes along, um, we'll look back on the impact that they had.
0: Quite right. Uh, one thing that I think will get a lot of column inches just to vary the World Cup coverage about Qatar because it really is a human rights issue and Amnesty will pipe up quite rightly. The Aspire Academy... That is doing really well. China have one as well, which I think is still called the Evergrande Academy, but Evergrande are billions and billions of dollars in debt. So what happens to football in China if Evergrande, who are essentially being bailed out, do happen to go under? Do you think the football will be ring-fenced because of Premier Xi's mission
1: yeah it's a, it's a really big question at the moment awkwardly enough as i was writing this book you know and as you say one of my chapters is is kind of bigging up ever and how much uh, investment they're putting into football as i was writing the book um everything started to to fall apart on that side of things so yeah time will tell the chinese super league and um, still hasn't resumed this season and um, most of the foreign players that were on big money there before have gone um oscar is still around so he's seen out his contract yeah, I yeah noticed so it's that. it's not looking um not looking too bright for Chinese football. The national team crashed out of World Cup qualifying and um, didn't even come close really. So uh, time will tell, but it's a great parallel you've drawn there between the Aspire Academy and the Evergrande Academy. Because, because I think if they can achieve what the Aspire Academy have done with obviously a much, much bigger population, they would have to. you would have to assume that the national team are going to come on.
0: I haven't looked it up, but I will now. How many Qatar internationals are actually born in Brazil uh, and you, you note that because of Yanaris, or so what is it? Le Yi, Le uh. Yi. Yeah. Uh, yes.
1: Lico, 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 thank
0: you. <laughs> um, this, don't forget, Diego Costa won a World Cup with Spain. Brazilian. Brazil, have, I think that stat was 92. Brazilians have played outside Brazil now for another nation.
1: Right, yeah, and, that, and again, that's that's something that China have not given a go. And, you know, it begs the question if China won the World Cup with seven naturalized players, what pride can they really take from that? They shouldn't really be relying on them, considering, um, you know, the investment that's been put in. But I'm actually quite optimistic about Chinese football. I think if you look at when Italy won the World Cup um, in 2006, you know, the game was on its knees there. Sometimes I think in adversity, um, you know, you, some triumph can emerge. So I'm actually quietly optimistic about Chinese football. I think maybe 20, 30 years from now, the narrative can be totally different.
0: Yes, and we, we will see. We could only live and see what happens in football. But I look forward to following the Asian Cup next year, wherever it may be. And thank you very much for giving me sight of missionaries, the Brits and Irishmen at the centre of Asia's footballing revolution. Chris, do you get a summer? Are you going anywhere?
1: Hopefully, hopefully. Um... We'll see now. I'd actually love to go back to China um, to see Jai's family. But uh, as I say, um, lockdown measures there mean it may be um, unlikely. But, uh, yeah, thanks so much, Johnny. Thanks for giving me the time here to discuss the book. Yeah, no
0: problem. Shia, um, shia, ni yeah. and zai, jen.
1: <laughs> zai, jen, Johnny. <laughs> I don't,
0: I don't, what do you say in Ireland? Take it easy.
1: Yeah, take it easy. All the
0: best. All the Slant best. Slant just like the, library, just like the Shhh! <sharp inhale>